This message is from Icon from Community Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A reading from John 4, verses 43 to 54. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, Come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. We've been in this series uh, in John, and it's been, it's been really refreshing for me because as we said before, John is this, the, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, but John is very different from the other three gospels because you've got these three gospels that largely cover much of the same stories. They're known as the synoptic gospels because uh, likely the oldest or the earliest of those three would be Mark, and it looks like they're all drawing from Mark's gospel in order to complete the stories that they have. That's why those stories are all very similar, but John is very different. And John seems to include stories in order for us to have a a fuller view, a larger view of who Jesus is, so large that John is constantly reminding us, by the way, this Jesus that you've been hearing about, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a good man, he is Lord, he is God. So he tells us many of these stories when John tells us throughout that he wrote these stories so that we would have an enlarged view of who God is. And you see a clear progression throughout John's gospel. You see John in the very beginning, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus the Christ. Remember, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we see Jesus come on the scene. And then uh, you see uh, in chapter 1 later, you see Jesus picking up disciples, going to that wedding at Cana where we saw the first miracle uh, done. Then he goes to Capernaum and goes to Jerusalem for Passover. Remember, he goes to that temple and uh, continues to show like his authority and shows that he's God and kicks over money changers and begins to cleanse the temple. Then we saw the meeting with Nicodemus, this great Jewish leader. Then he goes back to the Judean countryside and along the way, he's attracting followers. He's attracting both positive and very negative attention which is why he begins to almost go on the, on the run, and he runs into the woman at the well in Sychar, and the Samaritan woman, and he has that exchange that we, that we talked about. And then we're here. Jesus is now back at Cana. 
is this journey that he's been on and all the things we've already seen. Here we are at the end of chapter four, and he's back at Cana where the first miracle happened. Now, I don't know why, I never thought about this, but the first two miracles that we see that Jesus does, they both happen in this little town of Cana. The first one we saw, the, the, the water being turned into wine, and then the second one here, this, this man's son who is dying and dies, and Jesus commits this incredible miracle to bring him back to life. He reveals himself. Now, this is why it's interesting to me. Why these two miracles? I never really thought about this or even questioned. Why these two? I mean, juxtapose the miracles for a minute. Think about the comparison here. One miracle, full of joy and excitement. The other one, death and sorrow. Joy and excitement, this first miracle. And then death and sorrow, the second one. It looks like John is really showing us something about Jesus, how Jesus is the Lord over the two major bookends of all of our lives. Every one of us has these areas of our lives where there's joy and excitement and exuberance, and every one of us knows what it is to have to see, face, or hear about, or embody what it means to deal with death and sorrow. And sometimes we prefer to see Jesus in one and not in the other. Oftentimes we struggle to see Jesus in the other. And it could be either way. Maybe we are one that's very acquainted with sorrow and and we've been able to see Jesus there and we struggle with what it means to pursue real joy because all we've known is that. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe the God that I love and the Jesus that I love is is only the Jesus that I can meet when I'm happy, when things are going well, when things are copacetic, but when things are rough and hard, that's when it's hard for me to engage who God is. That's when it's hard for me to remember who Jesus is. And so John is showing us a Jesus that is indeed Lord of both the sorrow and the joy. He's Lord of the wedding and the funeral. We've got to be able to see him in both places. And so it, it really hit me hard going, man, these are two very wildly different events from a wedding feast to this, this sorrow and sorrowful kind of deathly experience, this idea of gain and loss. One, one writer put it this way. Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. Jesus has a place in all of our circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, or bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and joy that is not of this world. In pointing to this truth, John is further documenting his claim that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, for Jesus is the Savior of all people at all times, in all circumstances. This is what God is, this is what John is showing us here. Before we even look through the details of the story, it's a short story, but there's a lot of rich depth here about who, what, what John is showing us about who Jesus is. There's something about Jesus we're supposed to see. So I've named this uh, the phases of faith, the stages of faith. When you think about your faith and somebody were to say, hey, sum up really quickly your faith, it's impossible. If you really think about it, because none of us had a perfectly formed faith from the moment we believed. As a matter of fact, I would say for most, if not all of us, you can't pinpoint exactly when you fully believed. Now, you can pinpoint a time where you made a decision, 
You can pinpoint a time where you felt some things, but you got to re- realize our faith is always being fully formed. Always. So, so there's a time where maybe you've got a faith here, but there's still a whole lot about who God is that I may not even yet know or yet believe, and that has to continually be changed and transformed and added. And so there are these various phases, and we see those phases on display, I believe, in this, in this story. So if we were to break it down into maybe five phases of your faith, there's the beginner's faith, the persistent faith, the trusting, obedient, and working faith, a confirming faith, and then a witnessing faith. These are the stages of faith, these phases that you see on display even within this man who loses his son. And so when you, when you look again at uh, this story, these first couple verses, 43 and 44, After two days he left there for Galilee, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Remember how he said that John is the king of parenthetical statements? He just gives you a lot of like insight. He wants you to know what was really happening and what's getting ready to come. He does a lot of foreshadowing. He's wanting us to remember, here Jesus is going all throughout the countryside. He's going all throughout these different places, doing these incredible things. There are believers that are following him. There are people that are really at a stage or at a phase in their faith where they're believing him on some level, and yet the very place from which he came, they never get to that place. As a matter of fact, you really don't see much made about Nazareth as far as a place where people are really coming to faith throughout history. You don't really hear about this, this huge church in Nazareth. You don't, the New Testament never points out anything else happening in Nazareth. They just seem to look at him as that kind of quasi-weird carpenter's boy who really don't even know if that's his real daddy. That's how they've looked at him. They don't believe him. His reputation is sullied in their eyes. He never really is accepted there. So John lets us see that because he's also trying to show us the different kinds of people and the different kinds of faith that people have. Because you've got these certain kinds of people here. You've got folks who don't receive him. Like the first, the ones in his own hometown. They rejected him outright. And you see that uh, Luke even says that he was publicly rejected uh, when he announced his, his, his ministry. They were like, isn't this Joseph's boy? There's no way he can be the Messiah. And so you've got this picture. You, you, you never see the town brought up again. And then in verse 45, you see uh, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed, welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. So you got this, this other group of people. They don't reject him but they receive him based on what he can do for them. So again, you've got these stages of faith where it may even start out with this this need that I might have. They don't necessarily still see Jesus or really believe him for who he actually is, but they at least believe him enough to be able to know I might get some good things out of it. So when you look at uh, verses 46 and 47, this is where you really see the beginner's faith. This is where you see what it means to be kind of like this this inchoate phase of your faith, this beginning stage, beginning faith. When Jesus entered the city of of Cana, you've got this. The scripture says that there was a a, a, a nobleman, if you will. And it's interesting when you look at how they refer to this certain royal official. That word for like nobleman or royal official, it's the word from which we get the word basilica, right? This, this very important structure that in general is supposed to be looked at where like major officials would rule. 
This man is, is one of, of very high repute. He's likely working in the court of Herod Antipas. He is likely someone that has a, a lot of influence, someone that has a lot of pull, someone that people really know, someone that honestly, to be a follower of Jesus could be really disastrous, much like Nicodemus as a Jewish leader. This man, we don't know if he's Jewish or, or a Roman leader. We don't know for sure about that, but we just know that this man on some level has a beginner's faith uh, and a belief in Jesus. Now, what do we see first? We see that there was a desperate need. This man's son was at the point of death. For a lot of folks, this is where faith sometimes begins. It's not, it's not bad. For, for some folks, they may not have been raised in a community where they had to really think about uh, Jesus in this way. They've never really had to account for who Jesus is and the claims that he makes. And then something cataclysmic happens. Then something that they cannot account for on their own happens. Then some type of major need happens uh, in which they don't have what it takes to solve it on their own. They realize, I need something outside of me in order for me to realize that I need Jesus. That's where this man finds himself, this desperate need. And listen, some kind of desperate need confronts every person on some level at some point in time. We all can connect to having some type of deep, desperate need, something that a friend can't solve, a spouse can't solve, a family member can't solve, alcohol can't solve, drugs can't solve, Super Bowls can't solve. We need something beyond it, right? And so this man is in this place where he's finally there. You got to remember, this is a man who is a major official. So if anybody can pull strings to meet needs, it's this guy. So you, you imagine just how humbling that has to be to realize not even my power and my connection to the most powerful guy in this land, my connection can't solve the problem, my greatest need. So I've heard about this guy, Jesus. I've heard some things that he's done. People are talking about him. I don't have any other choice but to at least believe something. So he begins to, to believe in Jesus on some level. None of us is exempt from this from this need. So somehow he had heard about Jesus. There was a, a hearing. People in Jerusalem had been talking, and it must have reached this man's ears. And so he learns that Jesus had returned back to Galilee, and the man immediately sought Jesus out and urged him to heal his son, who was dangerously ill. Now that, that when you look at the way this man is, I think there's stuff that we can, that we can lose if we look at, at, at the language here. Because it says when this man heard he had come, he pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. That word pleaded or that word begged implies a repeated, persistent action. So at some point, right, faith starts with, I've got this desperate need and, I, and there's a need that's there. But then at some point that faith becomes persistent. At some point, that faith uh, continues to push and continues to claw and goes, I don't get it all, but I have to keep pushing until I can get it. I, I have to figure out more. I have to understand more about who you are and how you actually meet my needs. This guy ends up leaving uh, the side of his dying son. I mean, just think about that. His son is dying. His son is dying. At this point, he's probably utilized every resource possible. And he's looking down at his son and he's going, this is a tragedy, I just can't bear, there's gotta be something else. And so just imagine the little faith it took to leave his son's bedside 
and travel to wherever Jesus is, just hoping that he might be able to heal him. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would have had that. If, I, if it's like if there's some kind of an illness and my child is, is potentially going to die, I would just want to stay right there. I, just, I think most of us would. I would hate, because there's a big risk, right, to leave only to come back and realize that they didn't make it. And you weren't there for the last moments. It takes something else in you to say, I, I'm willing to risk everything because I just have a little bit of faith that Jesus might be able to solve this thing. So he leaves. This man leaves the, the side of his son. And then after that, he goes to Jesus, facing this severe disaster. And he comes to the only person who can help him, Jesus. We don't even know if he went to Herod. He probably knew that wouldn't help. And he goes right to Jesus. He had to travel almost a day's journey just to get to him. And here he is in this incredible place where he's not letting his own high position keep him from getting to Jesus. He doesn't keep himself wrapped up in any kind of pride. This is really a huge condescension on his part to come down, right? To come down from this high perched place, to come down to begin to reach out after this quasi-rebellious Jewish guy that he either knows about or not, doesn't quite get why, doesn't even know what all the hubbub is about him, but he doesn't even care anymore. His position no longer matters to him. His need and the idea that his need can be met, that's what matters. And so you get to that second stage, like we said, that persistent faith. And you look at uh, verses 48 and 49, and you see how persistent this faith is. Jesus told him, after the man goes to him, right, the man pleads with him because his son's getting ready to die. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Now, you got to understand the atmosphere that's probably happening around Jesus right now. I mean, it's probably almost like a circus because everybody's been hearing about stuff he's done, right? They heard about the wedding thing, and they're already hearing things he said, things he's been saying, things he's been teaching. People are following him. They're clamoring. They're trying to figure out what next. There's just a lot of people around. And this man gets to him and is just begging. And he's, he's maybe even kind of a part of this traveling sideshow that's there. There's probably a lot of people, get your popcorn, hurry up, get ready. You don't know what's going to come next. And this man is just coming alongside this caravan of folks who are just riveted, watching and waiting. And then Jesus seems to insinuate in some ways that this official, like the rest of the Galileans, they were only given an excuse to see a miracle from him. And on the other hand, Jesus' words may express his hope even more so than his exasperation. I think sometimes we look at this and it's like you would think that Jesus is looking at them and going, tis, 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 y'all just, all y'all need is a miracle right now, don't you? But then he does one. Like he doesn't just say, you know what, no. Until you get your faith in the right place, until you have your faith positioned properly, until your faith is, is theologically most accurate, then I will respond. But he doesn't do that. You know why? Because God is in the business of meeting us exactly where we are. As imperfect as our faith may be, he meets us right there. So he meets this man right there. Here's the other thing, though. While he meets you there and he accepts you there, he still will tell you where your faith is still not quite fully formed. So he says, yes, I'm going to meet you there. By the way, it's sad that you, you need a miracle every time in order to believe me. By the way, that's still a, a, a indicative of a faith that is not fully formed yet. 
By the way, there's still a level of strength and a, a, a level of, of vigor that's necessary in your faith, but he's the one that's going to give it to him. So he, he, he's teaching this man a lesson that man is not learning at the time, beginner faith, that eventually you're going to believe that my word alone is enough to strengthen your faith. Eventually you're going to believe that what I say and what I decree will be enough for you to be able to trust who I am. And so you, his power was at the, the nobleman's disposal if he would just believe him. In other words, Jesus is saying your belief should precede signs and wonders. Your belief should actually precede it. It shouldn't be contingent upon the signs and the wonders. We've said this many times. What happens when we have a faith that is most fully formed or is most dependent on signs and wonders? God then becomes only as good as the last miracle he did for us. That's what ends up happening. We end up shrinking God because we're going, okay, God, I like what you did back then, but I'm having a hard time believing you're still big God right now because there's some things I really want now and I'm not seeing it. So we begin to judge him that way. That's the danger. And what Jesus is saying is eventually you've got to get to a place where my word, what I've decreed, what I've promised is enough for you to believe in me too. And anything else is gravy. Anything else is amazing. And we're thankful. And that's a function of God's grace and a function of God's mercy. It's many ways why I feel like we've got to be really careful with how we use the word um, blessed. Because sometimes we'll, or even, no, not even blessed. We need to change the way we use the word God being faithful. And here's what I mean. Because a lot, if you're, if you're waiting for something, right, something that God may not have necessarily promised, but you need it, right? Man, I, I, need a, I, need a, a, I need something different. Maybe I need a better car than the one that I have. I can make it with the car that I have, but I really, really need something better. And then something works out where it happens. And immediately I'm like, God was faithful, and he got me my car. See, God is faithful to do the things he has promised to do. Anything extra is just his blessedness, his grace, and his mercy. But we've got to kind of be able to see that difference, right? God has promised some very specific things, never to leave us or forsake us. He's faithful to forgive us of our sins. He's just. These aspects of his character, those are the things that he's promised. Every time you realize just how broken you are, your sin nature has been on display. The fact that you can come and repent is solely because God is faithful. Anything extra is a function of his blessedness. You see the difference? So, so here is so vitally important then that, that in order to understand his faithfulness, we've got to hold on to what's true. We've got to believe what's true because sometimes what we ask for may not come. But in this case, we see what Jesus is teaching. He's trying to teach us some things about uh, maybe the way that we often think about belief. We often think that seeing is believing. But according to this Christian way of thinking, seeing isn't necessarily believing. First we believe, then we see. And then you think about the nature of miracles here. We've talked about this in other sermons. Jesus seems to use miracles in order to lead us back to the word. Jesus personified, the word personified. On some level, every single miracle that you see throughout the text, throughout the New Testament, you see miracles that in turn lead people back to Jesus. A miracle is done and all of a sudden people are going, who did this? He must be who he claimed that he was. He must be the Messiah. Now their hearts are turned to him. Not just 
turn towards what he might give them, but turn to, to actually who Jesus is. And so you see this, this, this picture of, of this, like we said before, this persistent faith. This isn't just a persistent faith. It's a very desperate persistence. This man was in no position to argue. He couldn't even think through what Jesus had just said. He was just desperate. He was just desperate. A severe disaster had just struck stricken his life. He believed Jesus was the only one who could help him, and he was determined to secure Jesus' help. And he cries out, Lord, come down. Lord, just come down. Come down here, or my child's going to die. I hear what you're saying. I don't even understand what it means but I need you to save my son. So we asked him to come. And this is where there's some significant things that jump out. This man didn't even allow Jesus's correction or rebuke to deter him because he still knew what he needed. And so he just kept pursuing Jesus even after that. Lord, I just want you to know like this is still my need. And this is why it's so important that signs and wonders, right? The boy's healing. They were not as important as actually believing Jesus. This man was helped because he persisted. It's persistence that's necessary in securing the Lord's help. And this is where you see, you know, scriptures like ask and it will be given unto you, seek and you will find. There's a, there's a piece that God wants us to, to understand that sometimes it's not just in the getting from him that builds our relationship. It's the pursuing him that builds our relationship. It's the constantly going after, the constantly making requests, constantly uh, confessing our sin over and over and over again. God never gets bored with repeat conversations. We do. Listen, if you didn't tell me the story seven times, that's God's number of perfection. We good. I don't need to hear anymore. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything else. But God is like, number 785, bring it. I want to hear it. Because on some level, every time you pursue me and share these same stories and share the same pain or share the same joy, there's a level to which you are getting closer to me. You're learning more about who I am, and I continue to reveal myself to you. He never tires of these repeat convos. So this man is just... I don't know if you heard me before, but my son, okay, I hear all of that, and you're right, okay, eventually that might come, but I still need you to know about my son. This, this isn't him being obstinate. This isn't him being uh, foolish. This is him being desperate. When is the last time that you prayed and persisted in a way that other people might go, you seem really desperate right now? What's the last time that we have just felt so desperate, like, Lord, I'm praying for something, that can't possibly happen unless you show up. It's scary when we, uh, we, you know, if you're talented people here, intelligent people, well-educated, all these different things, hardworking, all of this, if you know that you're talented and you know that you can do so many things, when is the last time you've ever felt really desperate? And I'm not saying artificially put yourself in a desperate place. I'm saying open your eyes and see where you probably really are still desperate because they're there. Then you see this third stage. You look in um, verse, verse 50. So here, before Jesus is like, hey, you guys, he gives them this cryptic thing he might not quite understand. Jesus will come back to this throughout his life. And the man says, no, sir, come down before my boy dies. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. This now, his faith has shifted. Because before it was the beginning of faith of, I heard something, I need something, let me just go check it out. 
All right, I'm desperate. I don't have any other choice. What's the worst that can happen? Um, but it's more than just this kind of what's the worst that can happen. I'm willing to leave my son who might die in order to go do it because, because I'm desperate. That's that beginner faith, and he becomes persistent. And then eventually uh, something, starts to, something starts to change. Jesus says, go. And the man starts to display that third stage, this trusting, obedient, working faith. He had to trust him. How do you know? He already knows that his son is dying. He left. He saw his son dying. All he did was walk to this man and just make a request. And the man, Jesus, says, go, he'll be all right. And he just trusted that. I don't think we understand just how crazy this is. This is a, remember who this is. This is a major official. You know what that means? That means that he works in a court where people make empty promises all the time. Anybody who's ever worked any connection to local or larger government, there's a lot of people who say things based on whatever's expedient in the moment. That doesn't mean you actually think it's going to happen. The next election that's coming up, there'll be all kinds of people promising things. They only accomplish maybe 5% of it. I don't care whoever your favorite person is. It doesn't matter who it is. A tiny scintilla of what they promise they ever do. So when you know that, when you're aware of that, and you're a person like this, he probably has made his share of empty promises. And now he's got this guy who is just coming on the scene, kind of popular, doing a bunch of cool tricks, and this guy goes, don't worry, your son will be good. What would have made him, what would have compelled him to believe and go, okay, great, and leave? A faith that's actually working. Because there's no good logic that would have made this man okay. Good logic would say, I'm sorry, I need to see something to prove this. But, but he, he couldn't do that. And think about how hard that, this is a day's journey. So he spent a day just holding on to a promise Jesus made. How many times have you just had to hold on to a promise just knowing God said it will never leave me or forsake me, but it's been about a year. God said it will never leave me or forsake me, but it's been five years. God said he's near to the brokenhearted, but this loved one has been dead for this long and I'm still feeling heavy. When's the last time that we had to stop and go, Lord, my, my flesh says that it's not there. It says that you're not there, but I have to hold on to what you've promised to do. This man is traveling for a, a day. He easily could get home and see his son dead. He easily could get home and go, I left him, took a day to travel. Spent time with that man, Jesus. Took a day to go back, and my son is dead. He risked all of that because now his faith was working. Now he's like, I'm, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to hold on. I'm traveling. I don't know. He couldn't just text to say, is he alive? He couldn't send a message out ahead. He's just going, I just hope when I get there that what Jesus said is true. And not even just I hope. I believe that when I get there, what Jesus said will be true. You see, if he refused to go back to Capernaum without taking Jesus with him, he would show that he didn't believe Jesus' word. See, most of us would have been like, I hear what you're saying, but I need you to come with me. Right? Like, I, look, I believe you did some stuff because I heard the stories, and the stuff you did sound really cool. I like wine, too. That sounds great. And since you seem to have some, some special abilities, uh, oh, here's the thing. Their stories, they were there when it happened. You're telling me to believe something you're not there for? No, I need you to come with me. That would be a logical response. That would be something I would probably say. I hear you, but can you come with me? But he, and that, to do that, 
would show that he didn't indeed believe in what Jesus told him. And Jesus says, go, he'll be all right. And he goes, okay, I'm going to travel all the way back. And he goes and he believed the word that Jesus had spoken and he went his way. This is what instantaneous faith and action looks like. You see how it starts to change? You see how the, these phases, sometimes we're in a place where we're just, I just know God on the level of having a need, asking for the need to be met. Then, then it gets to a place where God says something to me or he promises something and I have to believe it even when my eyes don't see it. Then I have to not only believe it when my eyes don't see it, but I have to act in a way that's commensurate with one who believes what God has promised without seeing it. This is faith in action. This man is going. And, and again, his need hasn't quite yet been met yet. At least he has not seen confirmation that his need has been met yet. This is that idea of faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He didn't see it. He doesn't know. He's just, I got to believe in what God has already said. Keep in mind, it's not, I got to believe in what I hoped God would do, even though he didn't promise a certain thing. It's, he promised he would do this. I'm just going to hold on to it. And this is where we almost have to get an understanding of our own faith. This idea of him instantaneously having this faith and action. He believed immediately when Jesus told him, and he turned immediately when Jesus told him to head home to his son. He acted on his faith. See, faith sees the unseen. And it's hard to understand outside of just the fact that on some level, the Spirit of God compels us to believe the things that he's promised us, even when nothing around us says the same. And so you've got this picture that we have to understand about the Christian walk. Both faith and obedience were necessary to receive the promise and to receive the help of Jesus. You just see it on display. This man had faith, and he just obeyed and left. Hebrews tells us all, shows us throughout 4 and 5, there's no real faith apart from obedience and work. There's really no, it's one thing to say I believe, it's another thing to actually live out your belief. It's another thing to say I, I indeed do, I, I obey this, I, I follow this, I'm going to, 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 to process this, but I'm going to live it out imperfectly. It's going to be a struggle sometimes to hold on to it, but I believe it. No person will obey Jesus unless he believes Jesus and truly believes him. Any person, they're going to live like they want, right? Outside of Jesus, you don't have to necessarily care about what Christ says. It's not until you truly believe who Jesus is that you begin to start walking and living a different way. See, that's different from, I live in a Christian household. My mom and dad always made me do this, so I do this. I grew up in church, so this is what I've always known. That's it. That does not necessarily mean that you believe Jesus and follow him. It just means you believe your parents and you follow them. You believe your grandparents and you follow them. And that's not necessarily bad. We're supposed to raise children in this fear and admonition of the Lord. But at some point, they should graduate to these various, these higher phases of faith. So it's like, okay, now at some point, I've got to make this faith true for me. So for every kid here, you're under 18 years old, listen to this. Kids, at some point, you're going to have to ask yourself the question, is this faith my faith or is this my mom's faith? Is this my dad's faith? 
At some point, you're going to have to answer that question for yourself. Parents, we need to ask ourselves, am I just pushing my faith onto my children or am I pushing a true biblical faith in Jesus onto my children? Because the only thing that's going to sustain them is the latter. You know what will fail them? The former. Because they can't rest on what God did for you. What God did for you will not help them in whatever problem they're getting ready to go into. They need something deeper. They need something meatier. They can be encouraged in remembering what God did, but they need something meatier. They need to know, what does it mean for me to have a deep and abiding faith and belief in who Jesus is? And then you see this, this fourth stage. So he's, this man, uh, he's, he's running back. He's coming home. Uh, he's, he's believing. He's just holding on to what Jesus has promised him. And then he gets to, you look at verses 51 through 53, here he is, kind of probably palm sweaty. You really, we say this all the time. Imagine, these are real people. Just imagine being this person. Child's been sick, dying, might be gone when I get there. All I'm doing is holding on by faith with just this one promise. He gets there, 51. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them at what time? He said, what? What time did he get better? Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. You're seeing, you're seeing a bunch of levels of belief here, aren't you? See, this belief was a confirming belief. As he was going, in the act of obeying Jesus, that's when his faith gets confirmed. You hear that? Sometimes it's like, I, I don't want to act until I get some confirmation. But here, he's like, I'm just going to obey what he's promised to do. I'm going to listen. I'm going to obey it. And, and in the act of obedience, the faith becomes confirmed. Now, this is so easy to miss. Because in any other situation amongst relationships with each other, by and large, we're all from Missouri. Show me state. I need for you to prove it to me before I actually believe this thing. And I'm not saying that's unwise. There are some people that make a lot of bad, empty promises, and you've trusted in that, and you end up getting hurt, right? But, but, but here, there's this incredible picture of, of, of this man in the act of obeying Christ gets the news that his prayers were answered. What was essential? His belief and his obedience. His belief and his obedience. Also pay attention to the fact that this man confirmed the supernatural versus the natural. Think about this. He asked the exact hour the boy recovered, one in the afternoon. He wanted to know. Like, there's something about this. This is what's beautiful about this. He could have just stopped there and goes, yes, my prayer was answered. Let me go. But he's saying, no, wait. I want to have something else that's going to build my faith further. Show me just how much. Show me the degree to which God kept his promise. I want to go, I want to know just how truthful the Messiah is. When did he get healed? When did he come to? Came to at one. Oh, snap, that Jesus is something else. I was just talking to him at one o'clock. I put a note, dear diary, talk to Jesus at one o'clock. And now I'm seeing this. There's something about, do you realize G Jesus loves to confirm our faith? 
We think that, that following him and obeying him is just so laborious and it's, it's just so cumbersome and it just feels like you're just putting another yoke around my neck. And Jesus is saying, when you obey me, that's when I meet you. That's when I, I, I build your faith. That's how you know you can trust me. This was never meant to be this burdensome thing. I have my best for you within the walls of faith and obedience. And so you see him, this man wanted to be certain. He wanted absolute confirmation. He's reaching out for stronger faith in Jesus. There's something about this persistent faith we're talking about where you never get comfortable with where it is. You're like, I'm always looking for more ways to deepen and strengthen my faith. Which means you don't just rest on the laurels of answered prayers. That's great. But you go past that and you're like, I want to know more reasons why I can continue to trust him. I want to know more reasons why his promises are true. I want to believe more reasons why I know that he won't let me go. I need stronger faith. And so the only way that our faith gets stronger is in our obedience. He shows up and confirms it, and then we ask for more. And you can never be greedy about wanting your faith to be stronger. That's, ne that's never a greedy request. And then you come to this fifth stage a witnessing faith. This man didn't just, he didn't just get his prayers answered. He didn't just ask for information that could confirm and deepen his faith. Then he moves on. Scripture says, the father realized that this is the very hour it was Jesus that told him your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. He believed and his household believed. Why did his household believe? They didn't see Jesus. They weren't there. Jesus didn't send them an email. <laughs> they didn't get any other information other than the information that was given to this leader, which means this leader had to communicate his interaction with Jesus to his family. He had to communicate his faith to his family. See, it's one thing to say, I believe in him. He's shown himself to be true, and I rest on that, and I trust in that. But will I communicate that? There's yet another level in our faith to go. So call it what we want, evangelizing, witnessing, sharing our faith, giving a reason for everyone that asks. We're called to do it, whatever you want to call it. We're called to share. Why is it that I have trust in Jesus? And if we are in this mature place of faith that we like to think that we are, I'm not calling nobody out. If we're there, then that means that we've walked through this rhythm. I have my beginner faith. Sometimes it's hard to communicate the beginner faith. I've got the beginner faith. Then I've got this persistent faith. Then I've got this, this, this picture of trusting, obedient, and working faith. So I'm operating in that. And now I have a real confirmed faith. I have things I can look at that shows for sure Jesus keeps the promises he made. If all of that has happened, then you should be able to communicate that on whatever level. We should be moved to a place where we can actually say, this is who Jesus is. This is how he keeps his promises. Let me show you what he promised from his word. These are the things that he's promised to do. Then I can tell you, right? We always say it's not enough, right? To just go off of your story. Now, to the degree that your story confirms the story that Jesus has always been telling, absolutely tell it. Jesus has always said, boom, boom, boom. And this is what I trusted in. This is what I believed in. Here's how he showed up. 
Here's what he said. Here's what he promised. And maybe not mine. Let me show you stories of people here. There's, and that's why we have a community of believers around because, hey, all, the, the more stories, the better. Do you share your story and you share your story? And all of these stories, we're looking not in just the salacious details of the story. We're not looking at the varying degrees to which the story is incredible and ha ha moments. We're looking at how do all these stories confirm the greater story of who Jesus is and what he promises to do. That's the story we tell. And so when we think about this, this version of faith, this witnessing faith, this man witnessed, somehow communicated this to his whole house. And maybe we don't know exactly what it meant for his whole house to believe. Lots of different ideas about what that might mean. But at the end of the day, here's what we know for sure. This man believed and the very grace of God fell upon him and his family. And so if it just means that the children in the house, the babies in the house, were born into a family where the grace of God was now on display, and they just grow up be hearing the actual faith of Jesus, the story of Jesus. This is what we just said for parents and kids. Somehow the truth of who Jesus is communicated to these children. And here they are, these newly grafted in members of the covenant family of God. This man, his whole house, what was he telling them? Y'all, I got to tell you about this experience I had with this guy. He does a lot more than work with wood. This man had the word of promise. He gave me instructions and I followed him, and I believed him, and I committed fully to him, and I now commit to him as Messiah. This couldn't have been easy for this man. Remember his role. This was a high political official, a part of a kingdom that feared any other power that could threaten theirs. We already saw what the Roman government had been doing to other people that seemed to threaten their power. We know nothing about whatever happened to this man. I can't believe it ended well. The more we look at history and the way people treated folks who were truly converted to trusting Jesus as king, which means there were things they probably would begin to abstain from doing, which means they would automatically be ostracized by the Roman government. This is what true faith does. True faith says, I honestly no longer care about the consequences that will come for trusting and obeying him. This is this man's life now. And now he and his family are likely in danger on some level. If they're believing this and he's communicating, now, maybe he's communicating it very privately, quietly. Maybe so. Maybe he's like, guys, until I figure out what's next, until I tell you exactly what we're going to do next, just hold on to this right now, but we're going to be believing and we're going to be worshiping. We're going to figure it out. We don't know exactly. But what we do know is on some level, his faith was a witnessing faith. He loved Jesus far more than his fear of losing his position. He loved Jesus far more than his fear of losing his own life. His faith, this witnessing faith, he wanted others to know this glorious salvation. So what does this mean? It means this. Number one, we need to acknowledge what we started with, that the needs, these desperate needs, they confront everybody. So how do you react? How are we reacting? when severe things happen and they come our way, when horrendous news breaks, when, when things that are unexplainable, when things that are heartbreaking, when things that just completely break us to our very core, where do we run? To whom do we run? And when we run to him, is our faith in him 
contingent upon him giving the outcome that we want? Sometimes. What, I've, what, what we see throughout scripture is, and we saw this even in this text, we say this all the time, God doesn't always give us exactly what we want, but he gives us what we need. Sometimes we don't like the fact that that's what we need. I, I, on some level, when there's deep, deep pain and deep, deep sorrow, uh, he, he might heal, he might not heal. But if he doesn't, then on some level, there's something else he's saying, I want you to have more right now. I can't even explain why. I don't even know why. I think about deep losses, heartbreaking losses that I've had in my own life. I can't even give a great answer for why things couldn't have worked out the way they should have. I can't. I'm not one of those people that tries to, after the fact, go, let's try to play a game of how God's will really worked out for everybody. I can't do that. And it just feels a little plastic and artificial to do that. All I know is that it's painful. It hurts. I can't explain why. But on some level, I'm having to go, okay, Lord, if your whole goal is to deepen my faith and to deepen my trust, then on some level, you're doing that work with me right now. And I don't like it. And it hurts and it's scary. But somehow, if I trust you, you're saying, I'm going to take you to a deeper level of faith with me. I'm going to reveal more of myself to you in the midst of this. So whether I say yes or whether I say no, you can still trust me. So what do we do? When real painful things come, what are we doing? Are we remaking God into a God that just has to say yes? Would Jesus have been any less Messiah if he told this man no? See, that's the scary thing sometimes preachers will do. We'll look at these stories and we'll see this happen. Therefore, it's normative, which means Jesus is the one that will always heal. So when he doesn't heal, the, fa the fault is on your part somewhere. So, so don't, don't miss this. Don't take this to mean this is, there are many times in scripture where God reveals things about himself that are principles about him and not necessarily promises in that way. He's not necessarily promising healing every time, but he's promising whatever answer I give you is going to be one that's going to deepen your faith and deepen your trust, which means what we started with, the bookends. Maybe this is going to be a story that's going to end up ending in sorrow and grief, but I'm still the Lord of that. Maybe this is going to end in the story that's going to end in you rejoicing, but I'm still the Lord of that. And you need to remember that he's the Lord of it when you're rejoicing because you need to hold on to that same Lord when you're crying. So what do we do? Are we going to believe the word of God or do we need signs and wonders in order to believe what he says? Will we continue in his word? And when we pray, do we just give up in prayer or do we persist in prayer? Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing, right? And there's this, it's not necessarily just constantly sitting here with your lips and moving all the time. It's this, this heart posture that's like, Lord, I'm always in a heart posture and a mindset of laying my petitions before you, laying my concerns before you, whether I'm thinking or talking, constantly communicating what it is that my biggest fears are, the things that I'm struggling to believe. And guess what? Guess what else? God can actually handle every single one of our complaints too. So we don't have to dress ourselves up to have the appropriate petitions for God. It can just be, Lord, I, I'm so frustrated. I, I hate that this person isn't here. I'm really, I'm really not understanding why you allowed this to happen. I'm really struggling with understanding how you're good right now. God can handle that. He invites that. We don't have to fake to be in relationship with him. 
So what does it mean then to persistently be in prayer? If you are sitting in a place where you are still wounded and hurt and continue to hurt, God is never saying there's a statute of limitations on that. Continue to bring it to him. Lord, I just, I'm going to keep laying this on you because I realize you're a God that is near to the brokenhearted and you will continue to hear my heart. Are we growing in the area of faith? Is our faith maturing? Y'all, one of the things I've seen in this church and other churches, one thing I've definitely learned and I think about myself, I'm not even saying this about everybody else. One thing I've learned is when you plant a church and you get people that are coming from all kinds of faith walks and you get people that come from like a lot of experiences, Christians or whatever, people are rarely as mature as they kind of make you think when they get here. That's just honest. None of us. We are not as mature as we appear to be right now. And it takes a while before we all start to accept that. So when that lack of maturity shows up and we get disappointed or we get angry and we get mad, we get mad that that person over there didn't do the mature thing and now we're overlooking the fact that we are awfully immature ourselves. And there's probably no better way to understand the immaturity spiritually of people than to plant a church. Because, because here's the problem. When you're planting a church, you need to rely on these folks. I'm not trying to hit no, I'm not even trying to beat up nobody. I'm just saying, you've got to rely on people to do the work of the ministry because that's what the, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's never about to be the professional people doing, the professional Christians doing the work and just issuing edicts and orders to everybody. It's the idea of equipping, what does Ephesians say? Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So when you are depending on the saints to do the work of the ministry, and the saints are like, I'm still at faith level one or two. I'm not, I know I said, I put on my application four or five, but I'm really one or two. And I don't like it when you try to push me to four or five, because that's not the kind of faith I signed up for. This is a constant problem in any kind of ministry. But please understand that when we are in community here, whether it's me, any of us, or you push anyone else, we are supposed to be pushed to grow in these levels of faith. So when you first get ready to brush back, or you get ready to get upset, or you get ready to start questioning, I don't know how I feel about this, ask yourself, okay, wait, is this a moment where I'm being moved from level three to level four? Am I being moved from level four to level five? Am I fighting to hold on to my one and two? Because if that's the case, don't look at this as anyone really trying to make things hard for you. God is trying to pursue you. He's trying to bring you, bring us to a place of deep, mature faith where we start out as beginners here. And then we get to this place of persistent faith, a trusting, obedient faith, a faith that leads us to obedience where we believe him, we obey him, and we leave the results to him. And then and only then does that faith become confirmed, and then we have nothing else to do but to witness and communicate that. May we be a church that gets to level five. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I praise you for a faith that you don't leave up to us. I praise you for the fact that you don't, uh, you don't call us to, to, to write the rules of our faith. You don't call us to direct the, the path, you don't allow us to steer the wheel. God, it's so easy to act as if we're the ones who steer the wheel of our faith, and then we love to say, you're our co-pilot. And yet, God, I pray that we would realize our job is to get in the back seat. You drive, you, t you direct, you tell us where to go, you tell us where to sit, and we trust you.
Father, I pray that we get to a place where you give us a deep, abiding trust that you're the good driver, that you know where to turn. You know when to stop. We don't need to give you any advice. We don't need to give you any tips. Father, I pray that we would see that as a function of how you grow us, how you sanctify us, how you move us to deeper levels of faith. And Father, I pray that it would not be rooted in desirable outcomes alone. God, we're thankful for the outcomes. And, we, and you told us to pray for them. So Father, we pray for good outcomes. Father, I pray that our faith not be contingent upon the good outcomes. I pray that our faith be tied inextricably to your promises that we believe and we only believe by your spirit. God, give us a deep and abiding faith and let it be done for your glory, for our deep growth, and ultimately for your kingdom. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.